Amen. Let me invite you to be seated. It's good to see you today. Seems we have a lot of families out sick. Either that or they heard that I'd be preaching today. I don't know. One of the two. Um, it's good to see you, though. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the elders up here at the Edmonds Expression of our church. Uh, it's my privilege and my pleasure to open the scriptures together and to lead us through this passage, a very famous passage today. It's a very famous parable told by Jesus. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And of course, this is a story that has become uh, very famous and very familiar, not only to Christians, but to, to non-Christians too. In fact, we all know what it means when you call someone a Good Samaritan, right? It's a, it's a high compliment. A Good Samaritan is someone who shows kindness and compassion to, to someone who is in need, and, and that's a wonderful thing. Many people want to do that. They want to, to be that, right? I, I know I do. And this is why you find the word Samaritan being used in the names of so many uh, hospitals and, and charitable organizations, right? In fact, here in the U.S., there are even laws known as Good Samaritan laws. And these laws are intended to encourage bystanders to, to step in and to kind of help out when they see a person in need. And so the word Samaritan, it has... It has come to be viewed as a very positive word. Now, that was not always the case, especially not with the Jewish people back in this day, but it is today. And the reason that it is uh, today is because of this very story that Jesus is going to be telling to us this morning. Now, many people are familiar with this parable, but what many people are not so familiar with, including many Christian people, is the real point of this parable. This parable may, in, in fact, may be one of the most misunderstood of all the parables Jesus told, and he told, he told a lot of them. When most people think about this parable and what Jesus is teaching in it, they think that the main thing that Jesus is, is teaching is that we need to be more like the Good Samaritan. We need to be more loving, we need to be more caring towards our neighbors who are in need. And while that is true on a, on, a, on a certain level, I want to suggest to you that's not really the main point of this, of this parable at all. Now, we'll be exploring this passage under three headings today. First, the provocation of Jesus, the parable told by Jesus, and the real purpose of the parable for this man in the passage that we're going to meet, and for you and I today, too. And so let's, let's dive in. First, the provocation. Now, this passage begins in verse 25 at a time when Jesus was teaching a large group of people like he often did. And we're told that on this particular day that a person in the crowd, an, an expert of the law, a lawyer, many translations say, had a question for Jesus. And so look at verse 25. It says, then an expert of the law, in the law, stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now this, this lawyer that we'll be talking about this morning would not have been the type of lawyer that, that may come to mind when you, when you hear that word. This guy would have been an expert in the law, but he would have been an expert in the Mosaic law, in God's law that, that God had given to his people through the prophet Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so this lawyer who stood up, he was a religious scholar of sorts, he he was very much a part of the religious establishment at that time. This guy knew his Bible very well. And we're told this man, he stood up to address Jesus. And most typically, standing up in this sort of way was a sign of respect and, and honor, at least in this sort of setting back then. 
But in this case, with this lawyer, we know that he did not stand up for that reason. And we know that because verse 25 just told us that. It says the guy stood up to, to test Jesus. He wanted to put Jesus to the test in verse 25. And he was, he was hoping that Jesus would, would fail that test. You see, at this point in uh, the ministry of Jesus, he was, he was very much trending. He had gone viral in large part because of the controversial things that he was saying and that he was doing. In fact, some of the things that Jesus was saying and doing led many, to, uh, many, many people who were part of that same religious establishment to think that Jesus had a, had a very low regard for the law and for the scriptures. He seemed to be pretty lax at times when it came to the law. He even seemed at times to some to, to contradict God's laws and even to, even to break them. And so many of the Jewish religious leaders were suspicious of Jesus because of these sorts of things. And in many ways, they were, they were threatened by Jesus as well because of his growing popularity. And so the religious leaders of the day, like this lawyer, they were, they were often gunning for Jesus. They were often doing whatever they could to kind of dig up dirt on him that they might later use against him. And so when this lawyer stood up to ask his question in verse 25, let's be uh, clear about something. It was, it was not because he was being respectful or, or really looking for answers. He stood up and posed this question because he was hoping to, to test Jesus, it says, and really to, to trap Jesus. And the question this lawyer stood up and posed to Jesus on that day was this. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to, to get right with God, to, to, to go to heaven? And perhaps this lawyer was hoping Jesus might, um, again, be kind of lax on the law and say something like, oh, it doesn't matter all that much what you do. I'm all about grace. Just, just hang with me. Just follow me and you'll be good. But Jesus, I think, he knew what this guy was up to. He was used to this sort of thing. And as he often did, Jesus answers the question posed to him by this lawyer, not with an answer, but with, with another question. Rather than answer the question directly at this point, he turns the table on the lawyer and uh, begins asking a question of his own in verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus said to the lawyer, well, what is written in the law? How, how do you read it? And so Jesus turns to this guy and says, you're the lawyer, you, you tell me. What do you think? And it should be said, this was not a hard question that was being asked by Jesus. In fact, I think Jesus kind of kind of teased this up for this guy on, on, on purpose, I believe. You see, over time, those who studied the Old Testament and studied the scriptures had, had kind of uh, distilled down the hundreds of laws in the Old Testament to two primary principles. And the lawyer combines those two principles. He combines what you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 19. And then in verse 27, that's exactly how he responds to uh, answers the question that Jesus raised by reciting those two principles. And so you see it in verse 27. The lawyer answered Jesus' question in this way. He answered Jesus by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the New Testament, you actually find Jesus summarizing the Old Testament law in, in this very same way. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, it's that Jesus says that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And he says, the second is this, 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depends all the law and the prophets. And so this lawyer, he answered his own question in the way that the scriptures seemed to, to answer the question and in the way that Jesus himself would later go on to, to answer that question. Love God above everything else and love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 28, Jesus says to the lawyer, he says, yes. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Just do what you have said and you'll be good, right? You'll be, you'll be good with God if you just do, do that. So first, Jesus is kind of turning the tables on this guy. Now we're going to see Jesus kind of turning up the heat on this lawyer and setting a trap of his own, I think. At times, the questions Jesus asks, they can kind of back us into a corner, right? They can kind of force us to consider things that we hadn't considered or perhaps didn't want to consider. He sets traps at times to get people thinking, to kind of chip away at, at false foundations and false beliefs, and that's, that's indeed what he's doing right here. You see, the premise of this lawyer's life was that his relationship with God was based on it was based on what he did and, and how well he did it. After all, remember his question in verse 25. He said, what must I do? What must I do, he say, said, to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer thought that what he was doing, he was doing quite well. He viewed himself as a, as a good man, a good person, better than most, to be sure. He went to church, he, he knew his Bible, he took care of his family, he would help out his neighbors sometimes. But why would Jesus say what he says here? Why does he say, go and, and do this and then you'll, you'll have eternal life? That's not the gospel. That sounds a lot like salvation by works. And so why doesn't Jesus share the good news of the gospel of, the gospel of grace with this man in this moment to, to kind of correct his misunderstanding? I think the main reason is because Jesus knew this man wasn't, wasn't ready. He knew that as long as this man thought he was a pretty good person and was accepted by God based on the good person he believed himself to be, Jesus knew he was not getting it. He was not seeing his, his true condition. And that's a big problem because the Bible is quite clear. A person cannot receive the good news about Jesus until they understand the bad news about themselves. And the lawyer, he wasn't there yet. It's a pretty common misconception, really, even today, what you see with this man here, this lawyer. Many would say that getting right with God, getting into heaven, it's based on being good and, and doing good. Some would say, in fact, that all religions are basically the same in that sort of way. Religion says the good people get in, the good people find God. In fact, good people of all faiths and all religions can find God and be accepted by God, many would say. It does sound very nice, sounds very inclusive, but think about this carefully with me. If that's the case, if it's, if it's only the good people who find God and are loved by God, what about us bad people? Because I think you just... You just left me out. Some of you may say, oh, you're exaggerating, Jeff. You're a good person. But I know my own heart. And at times it feels like there's not much good in it at all. 
if you believe that good people of all faiths can find God, isn't what you're really saying is the good people find God and the, the bad people don't, right? The good are in and the, the bad are out. And when you say that, haven't you just made your view far more exclusive than even the gospel is? And when you say that, I'm quite certain that you just left me out. Because in a lot of ways, on a lot of days, I feel like I'm floundering in my, in my obedience to Jesus. What about you? The gospel is not for those who think they're good. It's for those who know they're not. It's for those who understand their true condition and can see their desperate need for God's grace. And this lawyer, he wasn't seeing it, and that's what, that's what Jesus is going after in this man's heart. When Jesus said, you have answered correctly, just do what you have said, Jesus, I think, is kind of grabbing this guy by the collar and saying, uh, let's get real here for a moment, eh? Jesus is trapping this lawyer here. He's backing him into a corner. He's chipping away at this guy's belief system. He wants him to see that he's not as good as he thinks. But the lawyer doesn't see it that way yet. And so instead of listening to Jesus and learning from Jesus, the lawyer instead starts to kind of try to maneuver around Jesus. He wants to clarify some things. Jesus says, love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what the lawyer says next in verse 29. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? And so the lawyer starts to maneuver a bit. And in a way, what you see with this lawyer in this moment is it's the story of the human condition ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3 in a way. You and I trying to justify ourselves by kind of whittling down God's word and God's commands to, to something that seems more manageable to us. By asking this question, the lawyer is saying, okay, look, Jesus, let's be reasonable here. There must be some way to explain these principles and to uh, define these terms in a way that makes it possible to actually obey them, right? Surely there must be limits, and surely I'm I'm meeting those limits. I mean, look at me. Look at my life. I love God. I, I treat others well. I give to charity. When the lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, what he's really asking is, what's the, what's the bare minimum? Who do I really need to love like that? Because it can't mean everyone, right? Let, let's be reasonable here. And so the lawyer wants to clarify the term. He says, who again is my neighbor, Jesus? And this time, Jesus responds to the lawyer's second question, not with another question, but with a story. Jesus tells a parable in verses 30 to 35 in response to the lawyer asking the question, who is my neighbor? And so we talked about the, the provocation. Let's talk about the parable now in verses 30 to 35. And it starts off like this. Take a look at verse 30. Jesus took up the question. And said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. And so as we step into this parable, we're introduced to this man, a Jewish man, traveling from Jerusalem, and it says he was going down to Jericho. And that description is, is accurate in a very literal sense. You see the road... Uh, from Jerusalem to, to Jericho was and is a very real, real, real road and a very, very steep road and a very dangerous road, too. The road, in fact, drops 
3,000 feet in elevation as you travel along. It's 17 miles from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the road, the road was dangerous. It was dangerous because it was steep and winding. It was dangerous because of the terrain, but the road was also dangerous because of the, the thieves who would hide out in the, in the caves, in the canyons nearby. In fact, the road to Jericho is called, was called by some the way of blood, the path of blood because of its reputation. And because of the dangerous situation some travelers would uh, encounter on that road. And it seems in this story that's exactly what happens with the man in the parable, right? We're told that this guy was robbed, he was stripped, he was beaten, and he was left there for dead on the road, essentially bleeding out. But fortunately, there were some other travelers on the road that day who came upon this dying man. Jesus inserts three other characters into this parable who were also uh, traveling the road to Jericho that day. And the passage tells us the characters included a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now the priest and the Levite, these would have been Jewish men, and so they were uh, of the same nationality and the same religion as the man lying on the, the road. In fact, not only were the priest and the Levite uh, Jewish, they were both ministers at, at some level. They would have been ministers who had certain responsibilities to God and to God's people. And so if, if, you, if you were a Jewish person listening in on this story Jesus was telling, like this lawyer was, you might think this was a lucky day for the, the, the man who had been robbed and, and beaten. Surely the priest and the Levite were going to step in and, and step up and, and help this hurting man out. But in verse 31, that's, that's not what happens. Look at verse 31. It says, a priest happening to be going down the road, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And so the priest and the Levite did not stop for this man. They apparently did not speak to this man. They literally, literally stepped around this man and stepped past this man and apparently didn't look back. Jesus doesn't tell us why they didn't stop. They, they may have feared for their lives, I suppose. We're not really told why they didn't stop and help. We're just told they kept going. They passed by on the other, the other side of the road. They walked around him. They saw this guy in need, and they each made a decision. They each made a choice to, to walk past this man who, who needed their, their help. Can you believe that? But there was another man traveling the road that day. This third character, a Samaritan, comes along next. And, and listen to how things unfold from here, beginning in verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you, reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side, but the Samaritan man, he, he responded with, with compassion. He felt compassion and that compassion moved him to, to serve this man and to, to meet this man's needs in a remarkably comprehensive way he goes he goes above and beyond uh in serving this man 
And then, then the parable ends. That's, that's the story Jesus tells to the lawyer in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And as we think about this, it's quite easy to think that the real message of the parable is don't be like the priest and the Levite, but be, be more like the good Samaritan. And at a certain level, that is a message of this parable. But I don't think it's the message. There's, there's much more going on here, too. And so let's talk about that a bit. Let's explore the purpose, the real purpose of this parable that Jesus is telling. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's redefining for us three things about loving our neighbors. He's redefining who we love, how we love, and why we love. First, Jesus redefines who we love. This lawyer, he wanted to put limits, didn't he, on, on who his neighbor was and who he was really obligated to, uh, to love and to serve, but, but Jesus wasn't having any of it. And we know that Jesus wasn't having any of it because of the characters he chose to insert into this story. Now, you and I, we will miss a critical point and purpose of this parable if we fail to understand that the, the Jewish people of that day and the Samaritan people of that day, they, they hated one another. They were, they were bitter enemies. The Jewish people despised the Samaritans, and the Samaritans deplored the Jews. Now, it's easy for us to miss that because this word Samaritan to us is such a positive word today, right? Because of this, this very parable. But to the Jewish people in that time and place, including this Jewish lawyer, they, won't, they would have wanted nothing at all to do with, with any Samaritan. There's a place in John chapter 8, in fact, where you, you have some Jewish leaders who get really very, very angry at Jesus. And do you know what they did? Do you know what they called Jesus? They called him a Samaritan. Because if you wanted to say something as offensive as you could about a person, that's what you would call them. There was even a common Jewish prayer in the synagogues during that time that asked God to, to withhold forgiveness and grace from the Samaritan people. And so that's a pretty strong hatred. That's a, a deep divide between these two people groups. And yet Jesus picks a Samaritan, a hated people, a hated race, and he says to the lawyer, there's your neighbor. So Jesus is reaching across a massive racial and cultural divide. And he's saying to the lawyer, don't you dare, don't you dare try to limit this. You want to know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is anyone and everyone who comes across your path, who needs your compassion and mercy. Whether you like them or not, whether you think they deserve it or not. Whether you receive anything in return from them or not. Jesus says, that is who I'm asking you to love. That's, that's your neighbor. And so Jesus, through this parable, redefines who we love, but he also redefines how we love. And this is where the Samaritan really takes center stage in the story and, and kind of shows us the way. This story would have been shocking to the lawyer and everyone else listening because, well, first this man was a Samaritan, but secondly... Look at how far this Samaritan was willing to go to, to help this Jewish man. You just heard it in verses 33 to 34. He gets down off his horse. He, he puts the man in his place. He switches places with this guy. He gives him transportation. He gives him medical care. He meets his physical needs, his material needs. He gives him, he gives him friendship. 
He gets him a room at the end, at the inn. He stays the night looking after him, a, a midnight vigil, it seems. Why? To make sure this guy was going to, to make it. How do we know that? Because verse 25 tells us that. It says the next day, the next day the Samaritan is still there, still serving this man. He takes out two denarii and he gives, denarii and he gives it to the innkeeper. He says, use this, take care of this man, and if you need to spend more, I'll pay you for that too. And he says essentially to the dying man, you stay here, you're in good hands. I'll be back. You're going to be okay. We, we've, we've got this, friend. And two denarii was approximately two months of wages back then. And so, friends, this is comprehensive kindness and care. This is lavish and limitless Love being shown from a complete stranger to a sworn enemy who had nothing to offer in return. This is ultimate care and compassion being extended to this man in need. And Jesus is saying that's what it looks like to love your neighbor as, as yourself. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer in verse 36 and he says this. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him, showed mercy to him. The one. The man couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. And then what does Jesus say to the lawyer? Jesus told him, go and do the same. Go and do likewise, many translations say. Go and and love like that. Go and love likewise. And then that's where the passage ends. Jesus says, go and love like that. And when you do, maybe then we can talk about eternal life. At this point, the knife kind of goes in. The, the trap slams shut. The conviction is laid upon this man. But as far as we know, the lawyer gave no response to what Jesus said. There's a blank space in your Bible after that last verse because, because the passage is over. Go and, and do the same, Jesus says. Some of you may give money to the poor. You may be engaged in different forms of social justice. You may serve homeless people at the Union Gospel, gospel Mission ever so often. But if you think that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says you need to love your neighbor as yourself, you're, you're missing his point. Don't get me wrong, it is good to do those things, but please don't, please don't put yourself into this parable and identify with the Good Samaritan. Think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying everyone in your path, everyone in your path with a need, not some of the time, all of the time, is to be loved lavishly, loved sacrificially, loved generously and tenderly and limitlessly, loved kindly, loved as long as a need exists, no matter who that person is. And so, so who loves like that? Do you? Once or twice in your life, maybe you've gone above and beyond the call in, in helping someone in need, and that, that is wonderful, but that's not good enough. Not even close. Once isn't good enough, ten times isn't good enough. Jesus is saying you have to do this all the time, perfectly. It has to be a constant pattern in your, in your life, loving without limits. 
loving without boundaries, loving lavishly like the Samaritan in this passage does. And so do you feel the weight of what Jesus is doing here? He's backing this man into a corner and he's doing, he's doing the same with us. Because nobody does this. Nobody loves like this. Who, who loves like this? Nobody does. Not you, not, not me, not anybody. The lawyer had no response. What should his response have been? If the lawyer had said, I see what you're doing here, Jesus. I give up. You got me. I can't love like that. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Maybe this could have been a wonderful day for this lawyer, but he, he didn't say that. It didn't, it didn't go down like that. The only honest response by the lawyer that day, by everyone in this room on this day, and by everyone all across this planet on every day is to say, Jesus, I don't, I don't really love anybody like that, let alone everybody like that. I really only love me like that. Jesus, by telling us that we need to love God and love our neighbors in a way that is humanly impossible and tends to drive us to our knees and to drive us to our desperate need for his mercy and his grace. Which brings us to our final point. Jesus redefines not just who we love and how we love, but he also redefines why we love. And let's be clear about something. The reason why we love is, is not because we look at the Good Samaritan and we decide we're going to be more like him. That, that doesn't work. Trying harder doesn't work. Guilt doesn't work. Many people read this parable and feel guilty. But this passage is not supposed to make you feel overcome by guilt. It's actually supposed to make you feel overcome by, by grace. When Jesus says to the lawyer, just go and do that, love like that, what he wanted the lawyer to realize was that it was not possible for him to just go and and do that. This is one of the functions, in fact, of, of God's law, really. That is to kind of hold up a mirror to us and to, to show us our sin, to show us our inability to, to keep the law, and to show us our need for, for grace. That is what Jesus is doing here with this man. And so, friends, don't put yourself in the parable as the Good Samaritan. It'll, it'll only make you feel guilty because you're actually not very good. Nobody is. Nobody is justified by their goodness like this lawyer thought he could be. The Bible makes that clear again and again. In Romans chapter 3 verse 20, Paul says, no one is justified before God by works of the law. We all fall short, he says. We all miss the mark. But, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. A righteousness received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, who, who believe. Not for all who do, but for all who, who, who believe. And so friends, don't put yourself in this parable as the good Samaritan. I don't think that's what Jesus intends. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus may intend for you and I to identify with every other character in this parable, but for the good Samaritan. Because we're far more like the other characters in the parable, aren't we? You and I were a lot like the Levite and the priest at times. You may have felt upset when you heard about the priest and the Levite who refused to help. You may have been saying, shame on them, that's, that's shocking. But if that's how you feel in, 
in condemning them, you're, you're condemning yourself, and I'm condemning myself, because if we're going to be honest, that's how we behave most of the time with the needs that are all around us. How often do you and I cross, cross to the other side of the road so as not to be troubled or inconvenienced by the problems of other people or the problems of this world? You and I, we're, we're like the lawyer too, aren't we? He thought he was a pretty good person, better than most. And we can't help but be that same sort of self-righteous way at times, thinking we know better, thinking we know how things ought to be. We're like the lawyer as well in the ways we want to kind of pare down the commands of Jesus to something that seems more reasonable and more manageable to us at times. We're like the lawyer too in the ways we try to justify ourselves, justify our, our lack of, of, of love. How often do we say, I don't really have the time to help, I don't have the money to help, I don't have the energy to help, when deep down we know that isn't entirely true. Finally, and most importantly, you and I, we need to put ourselves in this parable and identify with this man who's flat on his back, on the side of the road, beaten down and stripped, hopeless and helpless and left for dead. Think about this, Jesus put a Jewish man on that road and he put a Samaritan in the saddle in a position of power, in a, in a position to help. And one of the things Jesus, I think, is saying to this lawyer by, by telling this story in this way, he's saying, what if it was you on that road? What if your only hope of survival was a free act of grace from someone who would call you an enemy? What if your only hope of a future was a generous act of mercy from someone who didn't owe you mercy and who in fact owed you the, the opposite? What if your only hope of rescue was a radical act of love from someone who owed you nothing but was willing to give you, give you everything? Would you want that grace? Would you want that mercy? How might that grace change your life? How might an act of grace as shocking as that, as, as disorienting as that, cause you to get up off the ground and to start looking at everyone around you differently? The gospel says Jesus came into this world. He traveled down into the human condition, moved by compassion, owing us nothing but giving us everything, serving us comprehensively, loving us lavishly, meeting our needs selflessly and sacrificially, Switching places with us and taking what we deserve so that we could receive what he deserves. What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? You don't have to do anything. You could, in fact, never do enough. It's not about what you do. It's about what you believe. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, only as we see the same rescue 
the same grace that happened to this man on the road to Jericho happening to us in the gospel, can we ever start to live and to love boldly and, and differently? This is the only way I believe that you and I can begin to truly love God and love our neighbors, not, not perfectly, of course, but more genuinely, more compassionately, more comprehensively, is by seeing ourselves as the man flat on his back, on the side of the road with no hope and no help, and by seeing Jesus clearly and compellingly as our true and ultimate good Samaritan who showed up and, and did something about it. Let's pray together.